We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time. It's time. for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined in the studio today by Ross Feingold. Good evening. And on the telephone from Kaohsiung by Michael Smith. Hello from southern Taiwan. Tonight we'll be discussing DPP lawmakers looking for an agreement on a residency plan for Hong Kong and Macau citizens. Groups calling on the government to expedite amendments to enable all transnational same-sex couples to register their marriage here in Taiwan. And Taiwan ranking 38th in this year's Press Freedom Index. But Reporters Without Borders saying that, well... Some of Taiwan's media remains impaired by some problems. But we'll begin with the latest coronavirus news from here in Taiwan this week, where the Central Epidemic Command Centre on Thursday announced that it will begin counting people in home isolation who return a positive coronavirus rapid antigen test result as confirmed infections from May the 12th. Health officials say the decision to change the confirmation requirement is due to overcrowding at PCR testing stations and parts of efforts to maintain testing capacity. Close contacts under mandatory home quarantine or self-initiated home isolation have previously been required to take a more accurate yet time-consuming PCR test to be confirmed as positive. But from next week, those who return a positive test while at home or in a quarantine, wherever they are, basically because they've been a contact, will have to report it themselves to the health authorities using the EU Care telemedicine app. Well, there we go. The Epidemic Command Centre is also saying that if an individual has the rapid test confirmed as positive, they are banned from leaving their homes for 10 days and must also follow self-health management protocols for a further seven days. Now, the health minister is saying that the new policy will prevent those returning a positive rapid test result from rushing to potentially crowded PCR testing sites. And at the moment, because there's lots of people demanding PCR testing, we've also got these drive-in testing sites here in Taiwan now. And of course, in true Taiwan style, they have special testing sites for scooters, which the photos you should probably look at if you have any interest in that. Now, Taiwan's PCR testing capacity has, of course, been put under considerable strain in recent days because basically the numbers of cases are rising. Now, while the government has introduced a rationing system for the test kits, there's still problems because daily queues are standing outside pharmacies, especially in northern parts of the island, because people just can't get enough test kits. Now, Taipei Mayor Kerwin Jur this week claimed that the government's persistence in reporting daily case numbers will soon be meaningless, as he says infections will exceed testing capacity. But the health minister says around 85,000 people are currently being tested daily, and the government has the capacity to test up to 200,000, meaning there probably aren't large numbers of cases going undetected due to insufficient testing. So, Ross, where do we begin here? Let's begin, let's begin with Mr Kerr claiming that reporting daily numbers will be meaningless. I think he has a fair point, and we should uh, defer a little bit, you know, notwithstanding uh, that maybe some people in the audience really dislike America, and if they do, they, they could rest easy because his term is almost over. Uh, but uh, we should defer a little bit, at least, to his his professional experience, keeping in mind he is a doctor. He might not be an epidemiologist, but he, he does have uh, some legitimate medical experience. And uh, if, if he thinks that this is unnecessary, it, it's not a strange idea. I mean, other other experts, not just in Taiwan, or, but, but worldwide have, have also taken that view uh, when there is an outbreak or an outbreak c continues to grow. I mean, maybe it was useful to know when, when it went from uh, uh, 10 cases to 50 or 500, okay, there, there really is a community spread or, or we should be more serious about washing hands and things like that. Uh, but 28,000 to 30,000, eh, yeah, yeah, 
maybe the information is marginal. Should, should it be published? Okay, fine. I know Taiwan has a lot of uh, pretty good uh, platforms to uh, publish government information. Uh, that's something that the central government un under President Tsai has put a lot, a lot of effort in, and most notably Digital Minister Audrey Tang as well, making government more transparent by, by the use of uh, uh, websites and apps and things like that. So, uh, yeah, no need to hide the information. Do we, do we need to have a press conference, you know, which, which frankly only results in a bunch of uh, foreigners like me going on Twitter and sending out the daily case count? We all think like, you know, we're revealing some really special news. Actually, all of us who are doing that, we're, we're not really sharing any special special news. But but I think there's another important point that arises from the the, the introduction that you gave, Gavin. And I, I was actually discussing this with uh, someone in Hong Kong a few days ago where, where they're having or they're coming out of somewhat similar or analogous situation, which is I, I think people here in Taiwan generally, or I should say genuinely, want to cooperate with restrictions. So look, it's not the United States or, or Western Europe where there are a lot of people who oppose mask mandates or or even requirements to have vaccines to enter certain venues. I mean, look, we know people here generally cooperate and have trust in the authorities. What, what frustrates people here is changing or rapidly changing rules or rules that are not explained clearly. Uh, I, I might not be a genius, Gavin, but I frankly, I had trouble following what you just described as as what the restrictions are for somebody who does test positive. And this has been changing, right? It's 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 still a work in progress. And it's a work in progress because that was a, a response to public demand, I mean, not to ship everyone who tested positive or came in close contact with someone off to a government quarantine center or hospital. But it's still very complex to understand what the rules are as of today, whether it, uh, the quarantine part, the, the post-quarantine self-management part, or how many times uh, are, during this period are you supposed to test, who are you supposed to give the test to, how do you upload it, can, can the food, food delivery person come up to my front door? So these things keep changing, and I think that causes a lot of frustration with the public. So, Michael, um, meaningless numbers and frustration there from Ross. Yeah, I'm really happy that Ross brought that up because I felt uh, that perhaps I was the only one who didn't understand this. So you said 10 days, but just a couple days ago, wasn't it uh, 3 plus 4 or 4 plus 3 or there was all these other plans? Then they're reducing the mandatory time that you have to self-quarantine for people who are coming into the country from 10 days to 7 days. Uh, what was the report about getting 5,000 NT if you're required to stay or being fined 300,000 if you don't report? I cannot keep up with all of this. And I think what that causes is uh, fear for some people and um, perhaps also some people being uh, less willing to uh, look into the rules. Uh, there was a case just the other day of a, a, a guy, you know, lying about his status. And, and it's hard for me to judge whether he did that because he deliberately was just being uh, not a, a good person or he was confused or what the situation was. Yes, I, I agree that we, we just were not... Be, and I, I, I feel for the government because the situation is so fluid. You know, we're m moving from a, a case where a couple years ago when we saw two uh, cases or three cases in Taipei, I would have changed my my decision whether or not to go up for the weekend. Whereas now we're looking at 30 and they're saying that, you know, we're, we're looking probably at 150, 200,000 at the peak per day. So I, I feel for them. I understand that they're they're in a fluid situation, but uh, it needs to be made clear 
and it needs to be easy to understand. And for me, it isn't right now. And do you think they should stop reporting the daily numbers? Um, I, I I don't really care either way. I think that uh, most of the Taiwanese people that I know like to know those numbers just just because they they like to know. Uh, it gives them a sense of uh, me as well, I guess, a sense of uh, of knowledge. I, I, I think I do agree with the Taipei mayor that they're generally meaningless, but, you know, I don't know why you uh, don't want to give information if information is available, although uh, I might be contradicting myself by saying it's too much information and being confusing, so I am. And Ross... Michael there mentioned basically confusion is causing problems and maybe some people maybe some people won't report their positive case. In fact, maybe some people will just sit at home for four days and not even have a rapid test. Well, as I said, I, I think people in Taiwan are, are generally willing to cooperate with these rules, whether it's mask mandates or other aspects of, of the current regulatory regime. And the problem still is understanding what the regulatory regime is. I mean, if we look back over the past two plus years, starting from February 2020, the, the, the cases of, of people who uh, willfully violated these restrictions, you know, for example, somebody who did bro- break quarantine or other types of dishonesty with regard to uh, self-management, uh, et cetera, et cetera, or, or the number of people who willfully refused to wear a mask and when they walked into a convenience store, which, of course, somebody was standing there with a mobile phone and f- uh, filmed it, and it went viral, made the news. I, I think those kinds of cases or examples are, are really small in number. And I guess you could say that's that's either a, a credit to the people of Taiwan or, uh, again, from certain people's perspective in the United States or Western Europe, uh, I guess it says we're all sheeple and we just follow along and don't question uh, or that we're following China's uh guidebook to, to handling COVID. Uh, instead of living with it, we're still sitting here in the ICRT studio with masks and a plastic partition. And you warn me not to lower my mask except when I'm drinking water. And, and you know, are those things really necessary? I, I, some of that I would say, no, it's unnecessary. But uh, I think the core issue here is uh, too much information, too much conservatism on, on the part of some authorities. Uh, but uh, as we often discuss here, it's it's also political going into the local election. We can't avoid that aspect of the conversation. So if Health Minister Chen uh, and his boss, the Premier, Premier Su and Premier Su's boss, President Tsai, if they're being conservative, it's because they don't want to get it wrong uh, in advance of the election. And getting it wrong is is simply going to mean as the number of uh, cases go up, the Kuomintang will just say, uh, you screwed up. Not, not that the Kuomintang had a better plan. And talking of you screwing up, of course, Michael, there has been calls this week for the health minister to step down because allegations basically he screwed up. Yeah, well, there's always calls for whoever's in charge to step down, and that seems to be the default answer to everything um, when anything happens. But uh, it doesn't, uh, to me, I, I don't see how that would help anything. 
Uh, when you were talking earlier about the long lines in Taipei for tests, um, that's a, it's unfortunate because it seems that we've done a, a bit of a better job here in the south. So there have been some lines, um, but nothing more than, say, you know, half an hour. And you've been able to go into the pharmacy and uh, order your test for um, two or three days down the road. So my wife was able to go in and get her number and then uh, two days later get two of them and then two days after that going in. And it hasn't been all that painful. So it's unfortunate that, uh, you know, you see people standing for hours and hours outside. And as far as the, the cost of the test goes as well, there's been some debate about that. It's about 100 NT, they're saying, for uh, tests that are sold overseas for uh, as much as 400 NT in Germany or Japan or Singapore. So the KMT has said that rapid test kits should be free of charge. That would be nice. 100 NT, however, is not, uh, I think, going to break most people's banks. And um, the Minister of uh, Economic Affairs pointed out that uh, the free tests that are being offered by many countries around the world are all made in China, which uh, is an interesting point. I personally would probably prefer to have a, a test made by, a, you know, a, a reputable, strong uh, medical uh, company that is uh, perhaps not based in China. And Ross, have you queued up in Taipei for a test kit yet? I don't queue up for anything, Gavin. <laughs> I wouldn't queue up for, for food, uh, for masks, for test kits. Uh, often these things do resolve themselves. The masks are a good example. Uh, when, you know, if we think back to just about a year ago at this time, or even uh, at, at the beginning of, of the pandemic in, in, in February, March of 2020, uh, when there was you know, a run or panic buying on, on masks. And then the, the, the government did implement a, a, a fairly good app-based system or, or, or you know, something analogous to what Michael was describing to, to buy the home test kits. And, and it worked. It, it's unfortunate that you know, it took a few days or a few weeks uh, to, to be implemented. And uh, by that time, uh, often the supply catches up with the demand anyway look on the first day or the first week of a run uh panic buying then of course supply is going to run out uh part of the controversy though in the past few days and this is very unfortunate and there really should be more transparency about this is that there's some legitimate accusations that uh, well-connected individuals or companies were able to win the bids to supply these tests uh, to Taiwan or to the government. And uh, you know, the, it's kind of a follow-on uh, with, with uh, what happened with Medigen, you know, being kind of favored by the government to de develop the, the local vaccine, uh, which was purchased at uh, you know, a high price. Many of them went to waste. And there was delay in acquiring vaccines from overseas while, while the government waited for Medigen to uh, uh, finish its research and development. So that, that kind of thing I, I have zero tolerance for. And again, I, I think the government should be transparent and not react defensively when questions are raised about why certain companies uh, who seem to be well-connected win the bids. Yeah, on a slightly different but uh, still related topic, uh, the response to vaccinations for 6 to 11-year-olds is something that is uh, more uh, uh, 
personal with me as I have a, a child in that age group. And it's still early because we've only uh, had this policy in place for, uh, I don't know, has it been even a week yet? But um, again, we're back to the situation with not enough information being given out. Uh, I saw a report this morning that had one school in Taipei reporting numbers of about 40% of parents saying, okay, my own uh, kid's school, they were uh, saying it was closer to uh, half, perhaps, and uh, I've heard other numbers that are lower than that. So um, on the 13th of April, uh, Minister Chen said that uh, Moderna is not yet uh, known whether it's suitable for children. It's still being researched. Then on the 18th of April, they gave uh, emergency authorization to use it. It Raises, but at the same time, then they say, well, in a week we're going to have uh, the, the Johnson one possibly also, not the Johnson, rather, the BNT one uh, available. So it raises questions with parents, and, you know, I'm one of them. So we just, we're not sure exactly what, what to do. So if uh, there was more information out there, for example, Australia, back in February of this year, they have uh, already gone with the Moderna one. Canada authorized it, if I'm not mistaken, in March of this year as well. Knowing the stats from those countries, knowing how it's uh, been applied and uh, what the reaction has been would be helpful. Then if you go back all the way to November 2021, you'll see that Cuba has been giving vaccines to children as young as two. Not that I think we should be following Cuba necessarily. Ecuador has been giving the China vaccine to children as young as six. Argentina has been giving Sinopharm to kids uh, as young as three. So there's not enough information for parents I feel, to be making uh, solid decisions about this. And the rationale for giving the vaccine to children is still a uh, puzzlement to me. Is it for the children's sake when the numbers seem to indicate that uh, the, the children are affected at a very, very low rate? Or is it what I hear from other doctors who say that it's so that the kids are not spreading this to other people, older people who will then get sick and die? What is the uh, the, the the point for, for doing this. So if it is only for the purpose, the stated purpose is to save older people, that, that would be difficult for me to, to be okay with because, you know, they should get their own vaccines. So I understand this hesitancy, and I think uh, the government needs to do a better job on communicating uh, about vaccines for children, uh, Moderna in particular, especially since it was just the other day, at least for me, when it wasn't okay and then it is okay. So that's uh, my thinking on that. And of course, Ross, the, when they rolled out the Moderna vaccine for children, um, uptake was rather low there. People will probably catch up with that. It, 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 it's the issues that we've been discussing during this segment. Um, some confusion. Um, when? Do you, should you uh, bring the children for it? Uh, which one? When will it be available? Uh, do we have to queue for it? Uh, these things take time, unfortunately. So this part I have being critical. I, I, I think a lot of the information is readily available uh, from, from other countries. And uh, the authorities here are, are certainly competent enough to repackage that information in a way that's accessible in, in this specific example for for parents and, and to 
to take care of this, to, to get it done and not, not let it fester. I, I, I understand they're busy and they have a lot of COVID-19 related issues to deal with, but we just heard from uh, the voice of a parent uh, that, that like some of the other things we've been talking about, their parents are yearning for clarity. And uh, I think people do trust the authorities when the authorities provide that clarity. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather important commercials. Welcome back to Taiwan This Week and DPP Legislative Caucus Whip Chung Yun-Pung this week told reporters that the party's lawmakers are continuing to seek consensus on a stalled plan aimed at easing permanent residency permits for professionals from Hong Kong and Macau. Now the new permanent residency programme had been set to be implemented on May the 1st. It was aimed at allowing people from Hong Kong and Macau who have worked in Taiwan for at least five years and earned at least double the minimum wage in the fifth year to apply for world permanent residency. However, the Mainland Affairs Council announced last week that the policy is now being put on hold pending further review and public discussions due to concerns that it poses a national security risk. Now, the national security risk issues stemming from those concerns regarding the residency programme is that it could allow China-backed companies in Taiwan to recruit people that Beijing has deployed in Hong Kong or Macau for many years, allowing them to infiltrate Taiwan. So, Ross, do you think masses of Chinese pro Xi Jinping folks will just flock to Taiwan to, to get residency here to work as a fifth column. Well, they could be pro anyone in the Chinese <laughs> Communist Party. It doesn't have to be Xi Jinping per se. But uh, th- this is not a new issue in, in the sense that uh, it, there's already for many years different categories under which people from Hong Kong could come to Taiwan to study work or uh, potentially settle. One of the more notable ones uh, is the investment visa pathway, which uh, has had a relatively small dollar figure of, uh, uh, I believe, six million Taiwan dollars is the investment amount, which uh, in the past, uh, before protests in, in Hong Kong in 2019, uh, a number of Hong Kong people utilized uh, because of the, the relatively low amount. You could borrow that, uh, you know, open a, a small eatery, and, and you could settle in Taiwan. And there was a pathway uh, to become a citizen as well under that program. Uh, but there was, and the reason why I'm bringing up this history is, is there, it's an important point. There was, frankly, a, a lack of of comprehensive vetting, uh, they're, they're just—it's just not something that the Taiwan government really thought about or was very good at. You, know, you ask you know, if we go back three, four years ago, you know, were the people in the relevant government agencies really good at doing a background check on, on an applicant? Well, Gavin, what kind of background check did they do on you when you became a permanent resident? Uh, you know, I mean, if they had, you, you'd probably be, you know, you'd be out of here. You know, knowing, Thanks. Knowing your history. <laughs> uh, so so it, it's just not something that, that the Immigration Agency or, or the Mainland Affairs Council are, are particularly resourced to do well. So when, when the, the larger number of applicants began, uh, in, in the aftermath of the protests over the past two two plus years now, um, 
eventually this question was raised, like, you know, what do we do? You know, somebody is, is coming into Taiwan with, with a 6 million NT investment to open a, a noodle restaurant, but we don't know what, what their real identity is or, you know, the same thing with students as well. So to the extent that there, there was a proposal to relax the pathway to permanent residency for people from Hong Kong, then the question, yes, is being raised. Now, we should keep in mind, and there's a lot of confusion about this, and it's something that the government does a really bad job of explaining. Hong Kong people, just like other foreigners historically, have come to Taiwan to work. So the idea of allowing a foreigner to come to Taiwan to work and including Hong Kong people, obviously that's not new. If ICRT wants to hire a Hong Kong person, uh, the rules to apply to do so exist. It's analogous to hiring somebody from other parts of the world, although because they're from Hong Kong or Macau, there's, there is a somewhat different uh, set of regulations. So the the concept here, or the idea was uh, to let that, that white collar professional have an easier path uh, to permanent residency. Not, not Again, it's, it wasn't opening up the ability to come here and work because that, that already existed. It was the idea that they could be a permanent resident and foreigners in the audience know when you're a permanent resident, you don't have to have a job. You, know, you could be a derelict uh, here in, in Taiwan <laughs> once you're a permanent resident. So then again, inevitably, the, the question was raised about what kind of background checks. You know, the government here did implement uh, an affirmation that, that you haven't been working for, for the party uh, or, or, for, or you have to admit if you work for a hunt Kong government agency, which then might result in, in more questions being asked during the vetting process uh, as well. Uh, th there might also be an element of protectionism here, and that's not new to the discussion about foreigners working in Taiwan. So if somebody says, well, oh no, why do we need to open a pathway for potentially thousands of Hong Kong white collar professionals, many of whom who do speak Mandarin, obviously they all read uh, Chinese characters. Uh, you know, why, why should we open a path for uh, advertising executives or software geniuses to come to Taiwan? Or they're just going to take jobs potentially from Taiwan people. And there's some legitimate aspects of that as well. As, to, as well. But the reason why I'm bringing up that part is just to 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 emphasize that the concept of Hong Kong or Macau people coming here to work, white collar professionals, that is not new. The, the thing that was being uh, adjusted here was to make it easier for them to obtain permanent residency. And, and again, there's been some criticism of that. Well, when they vetted me for a permanent residency, uh, I'd have the FBI put out a document, then it had to be translated, had to, translation had to be authenticated, then it had to go back to MOFA, then it had to come back here, then there was local police. So they, they, they took about a, a year to go through uh, my uh, vetting, so that was uh, 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 something that... You, well, obviously, Michael, you should, have wait, you should have waited until those rules were relaxed. You did need the FBI report. Yeah, I know. <laughs> Thanks. Uh, but... Um, the scaremongering thing that uh, at least I noticed in one news report was something about how since Hong Kong reverted to PRC rule, 100 people or something per day are allowed to enter Hong Kong and move there. So you do the math since that time, you know, X amount of people have 
millions have moved in and, you know, they could represent a fifth column, blah, blah, blah. I think there's plenty of ways that China can infiltrate Taiwan that don't require uh, such elaborate schemes. And uh, there's plenty of spies here already. And however you allow people to enter from anywhere, especially from Hong Kong or Macau, inevitably, yes, there are going to be uh, some that are probably, you know, working for uh, the other side. There's not much you can do about that. But I think that we have more to gain overall by letting these people in than we have to lose, especially when you consider demographics. We are not uh, keeping up with uh, the number of children we need for paying taxes that will support old people. Uh, you, you know, we all know about that. And uh, as Ross pointed out, this is for permanent residency, and the standards would say you need to earn at least the double minimum wage of Taiwan in the fifth year to apply for permanent residency. This is not some sort of asylum law where we are opening the doors to, you know, boatloads of Hong Kongers and Macanese to come and just live here if you touch the soil of Taiwan like some Cuba policy back in uh, the other days in America. This is a, a very different uh, story. So, yeah, it's not an unreasonable fear entirely that there could be some in this mix that are uh, undesirable in some ways, just as there are undesirable foreigners uh, in Taiwan from all nations uh, around the world. But overall, I would state, again, that I think the uh, benefits outweigh the risks, and uh, they should go ahead and uh, allow this. Uh, benefits outweigh the risk? Uh, yeah, and the only in my view to the extent that uh the, the approach is again similar to to other foreigners so uh if there's protectionism involved uh that might be an irrational fear i mean how many hong kong accountants or or, or software executives or financial professionals are really going to come here. Uh, so they, uh, <laughs> the, the legislators should at least be honest about that. I mean, if they really think that it's going to take jobs from Taiwan people, then just just say so. Uh, on the other hand, I, I've always been, or over the past couple of years, a bit of a skeptic on ultimately how many Hong Kong people are going to move to Taiwan. There's always been some you know, in, in past years before 2019, there's always been a couple of thousand uh, a year of, of Hong Kong people who came here temporarily to work. Uh, and for some of them, temporary became a lifetime, just like uh, the three of us who came here. And now it's many, many years later, we're still living here. Uh, but but you know, all this news reporting you know, a couple of times a year, oh, the National Immigration Agency has re released its latest numbers and there's now 10,000 Hong Kong people. Well, that, that's still a fraction of the number of Hong Kong people who are moving to other locations such as the UK, Canada, or, or Australia. Uh, so ultimately the numbers are going to be small. If, if the government wants to do more background checks, then fine. Then, then implement uh, the, the pathway for permanent residency. Uh, don't don't approach this like like there needs to be uh, false protectionism and and do the background check. Ultimately, though, I, I think this is much ado about nothing in the sense that I don't think many Hong Kong people are going to migrate here. Moving on now, but also staying with people coming here, LGBTQ and human rights groups on Wednesday of this week called on the government to expedite a proposed amendment to current laws that will enable all transnational same-sex couples to register their marriages. Of course, the government here legalised same-sex marriage in 2019. However, it still prohibits people from transnational marriages where one partner is from a country where 
basically they, same-sex marriage is not recognised and the government here cannot register that marriage. Now, the Judicial UN submitted a proposal to revise the Act governing the choice of law in civil matters involving foreign elements to the Cabinet for review in January of last year, but little progress has been made on that draft amendment. And groups such as the Taiwan Alliance to promote civil partnership rights say the government must understand the obstacles facing some transnational same-sex couples who wish to get married in Taiwan and they must speed up the legislative process. That alliance is calling on the government to allow a foreign national from a cross-national same-sex couple that was married in a third country to apply for a dependence visa to come to Taiwan. And if their partner is Taiwanese or based in Taiwan with a valid residency, they should be allowed to do that, says the alliance. Now, it's also urging the government to expand the new measure introduced by the Bureau of Consular Affairs to include cross-national same-sex couples with one partner from a country which is not legally has same-sex marriage and which the group says allows relatives of Taiwanese nationals and foreigners with valid Taiwanese residency to apply to enter Taiwan on a visitor visa. So, Michael, obviously this is this was a big, big, big problem with the legalising of gay marriage because certain countries don't recognise it and the government here said, OK, well, we'll agree with them on that matter, technically. Yeah, I, I personally don't understand the logic here. Um, the Autobahn in Germany um, has no speed limits on it in some places, but that doesn't mean a German can come to Taiwan and drive uh, without speed limits. Um, every country has different laws, but you follow the laws that are based in the country that you're in. So if the constitutional court has ruled that in Taiwan the uh, right to uh, same-sex marriage is there, which they have, and if the laws have been passed here to say that you in Taiwan are allowed to uh, marry someone of the same sex, then I don't understand why that shouldn't apply across the board. Now, of course, these people who do so wouldn't... uh, shouldn't expect to be able to go back to, say, Iran or the Vatican and have their marriage uh, recognized there. So uh, while they're in Taiwan, yeah, you know, uh, equality trumps everything else. Now, there's a few issues, of course. Uh, You probably would have some difficulties with some of these people being able to get papers or various documents that might be required from their home country, and that might be uh, a complication that uh, could cause uh, difficulties. Uh, but overall, um, I just don't see how this is a problem. Also, it's a very, very small number of people who are uh, asking for this right. And again, just the overall value of uh, fairness and equality outweighs all other issues on this one. If you are in Taiwan, you follow Taiwanese law. And Taiwanese law says you are allowed to marry anyone you choose who is <laughs> willing to marry you. So that's my position on this. Uh, I think some clarification is necessary and, and it, it's relevant to this discussion because, Gavin, you, you may actually made a mistake that a lot of people make. And, and Michael framed the issue accurately. You know, Gavin, when you said the government legalized same-sex marriage, that is not what happened. Okay, What happened is uh, individuals went to the constitutional court, which then ruled that, as Michael said, uh, you should be able to, you, you, you have a constitutional right to marry who you want, same sex or, or not. And uh, the constitutional court then said, legislature, you have to change the law. Now, yes, the government did submit a draft and it gets argued in, in the leg, legislature, legislative UN. But ultimately, the way this law was written with this flaw about 
not allowing people who come from countries that don't have uh, same-sex marriage to marry. Uh, this was just horrendous drafting by the legislators who just wanted to pass the law because they were coming up against the deadline. The, the uh, constitutional court gave them two years uh, to write the law in some form whether it was changing the civil code or a separate law, which is ultimately what happened. There was a separate law rather than changing the civil code. But it was the legislators who blew this. They screwed it up. Um, well, you know, actually, maybe I shouldn't describe it that way because they just wanted to get this done as quickly as possible. And they wanted to get it done with as minimal uh, political damage. And uh, there were some frayed relations between the DPP and the Presbyterian Church, which is a, a historically a, a source of support for the DPP. But they were, again, the church was against uh, marriage equality. So the DPP, whether you're looking at it from the government or the legislators, they wanted to make this go away. And the, they just quickly wrote the law and quickly passed it. Uh, People identified this flaw at the time as it was working its way through the legislature. But in their haste to make this issue go away, the legislators, uh, this, this is the way they wrote the law with the government's support. And uh, it's, it's a terrible outcome. You know, we've talked about this uh, on your show, Gavin, a few times over the years. I mean, as, as a lawyer myself, I think this is inherently unjustified and unfair for the reasons that Michael identified. Uh, but that, that, that's kind of, you know, that's the outcome of, of poor drafting and, and political expediency over doing the right thing. And uh, if you talk to activists um, from, from NGOs who look at this issue and work and advocate, uh, over the past couple of years, they said, well, well, the message we always hear from the legislators is, you know, we'll get around to, to changing this. Uh, so maybe they're getting around to it now. And that's why some things seem to be moving. And uh, again, because of political expediency, now is the window because uh, the, the DPP, whether again, whether you're looking at it from the government perspective or the legislators, uh, they don't want this to be an issue uh, around election time. Uh, Potentially, they don't want it to be an issue around the local election, and they certainly don't want this to be an issue over the course of 2023 in advance of the legislative and presidential election in January 2024. So now is the window uh, to try and fix this. And before we go this week, the Reporters Without Borders group released its latest World Press Freedom Index this week, and it showed that Taiwan has moved up five places from last year to stand at number 38. However, Reporters Without Borders East Asia Bureau Chief Cedric Alviani did stress that Taiwan moving up five places in the rankings does not reflect any significant improvement in terms of press freedom. According to Alviani, the movement is purely due to the new system that Reporters Without Borders used to make the index this year. Now, Alviani also says the press freedom situation in Taiwan remains impaired by some problems, those being the political polarisation of media and the sensational approach that it takes to reporting certain news, which he says poses an obstacle to factual and objective information. He also noted that Reporters Without Borders has been calling for the government here in Taiwan to take measures to address those problems, such as providing serious funding for public broadcasters without compromising editorial independence, but he says little has been done to do that. So 
Ross, there we go. Two problems there. Is Taiwan's media impaired by political polarisation and basically sensationalised reporting, which poses an obstacle to factual and objective information collecting? Uh, yes. <laughs> of course, there's political polarisation in, in uh, television and, and the traditional print media, newspapers, and increasingly the online-only media platforms. And of course, there's sensationalism. There's been sensationalism since the first uh, uh, independent television stations were established in, in Taiwan decades ago, uh, following the end of, of martial law. An international organization, an NGO, commenting about this. You know, come on, seriously. Do we really think the executives at, at uh, fill in the blank with the name of a TV station, newspaper, or online news outlet are, are calling a meeting today to say, oh, we better we better respond to this report. Uh, you know, we, all, we all love the work that, that uh, Cedric does, but uh, I, I don't think that this is really going to have any effect on, on the way reporting gets done in Taiwan. And uh, as for the suggestion to fund or more funding for public broadcasters, uh, well, the public broadcasters are in a bit of trouble right now. And it's been extensively reported for their uh, repeated uh, shortcomings and errors, uh, specifically on one television station, Quasher CTS. Uh, but uh, I think a lot of us are also aware of, of the epic, I would call it, amount of money that's been spent on certain other English language, government-run media platforms, which are, of course, are, are not as good as ICRT, which is the best. And uh, uh, how much more money needs to be spent on on public broadcasting? They, they already get an extraordinary amount of money here in Taiwan. Not not just for English news, but of course for Mandarin news, uh, Taiwanese dialect news, and, and also for news in indigenous language as well. I, I think that's covered adequately already. Uh, I agree. They uh, they have thrown way too much money at the uh, the one you alluded to, the English one, as well as Hakka and various other ones. And public broadcasting generally um, is synonymous with boring broadcasting for some reason, and just can't seem to break the shackles of that. But when it comes to sensationalism, I, 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 I always chuckle at this because you know, I've, I listen to young people tell me that, oh, Taiwan news is boring. It's all car accidents and fights. But then as soon as any real news comes on, they change the channel. So it's, it's, I, I don't know what they, what they actually want. Uh, this is not only young people, but just uh, people in general. So it is up to the media. It's a challenge for the media to try to present real, quote-unquote, news in a, in a way that makes it relevant to, to people's lives. But it's an extremely difficult task. And uh, uh, the fact that we've moved up or down a couple of spots is, uh, to me, not that important. Uh, what's more important overall to me is that Taiwan is a, a very free media society and continues to be so and is much more free than uh, many other places, specifically our large neighbor to, uh, to the, uh, the West. Uh, I'd also add quickly um, that uh, it's not always the fault of the media, right? There are other protagonists involved here. Uh, 
most most notably politicians. I'll, and I'll give give an example. Just yesterday in the legislative event uh, at, a, at a hearing of the, the Foreign Affairs and Defense Committee, a DPP legislator, Marco Hodzue, got into a, a lectern smacking yes. match with the Minister of National Defense. Right? Uh, legislator uh, smacked the lectern in, in, in questioning the defense minister because he thought the, the minister's answer was insufficient. And, and the defense minister said, uh, basically said, who you to smack the, t- the lectern at me and then legislator host smacked the lectern again and said why can't i smack the lectern uh, and uh, uh to, to tell you the truth i thought it was very entertaining to watch yes. right and then the uh they called a five minute timeout yes the, the children had a time and uh, then neither apologized to each other and once again it was just another example of uh <laughs> bad behavior by our uh, elected or uh, and appointed officers yay but Michael, I mean, Ross alluded to Hua Xia's um, boo-boos in the past week, mm. where, of course, it ran tickers at the bottom of one day's news saying that China was invading. And the next day, the very next day, virtually, or two days later, I should say, rather, they called the premier the president. Right. Um, it seems that perhaps uh, they are hiring some very young people who uh, may not have the qualifications necessary for operating certain uh, software or something. Uh, I don't understand uh, how this uh, would ha- happen with if uh, people that uh, know what they're doing uh, with uh, yeah, I, it seems to me that this is just a, a an issue of staffing or, or something. I, I, I can't put a, a finger on it. Uh, but more interesting to me is Ross's comments on the uh, other channels that are out there. I mean, I just have to be honest. And when I turn on any of the indigenous ones, or and you can talk to indigenous people as well, and they're not going to lie. You know, they they're not sitting there with rapture as they, they watch the 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 story of some grandmother who is pounding rice into a cake and da da da. It's a lot of money being spent on stuff that very very few people are watching, and I don't think that's the solution for more uh, media fairness or. Uh, yeah, balance at all. And that's where we'll leave it here this week on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined in the studio today by Ross Feingold. Have a great weekend. And by Michael Smith on the phone from Kaohsiung. Yeah, happy Mother's Day. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favourite podcast app where you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.